Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Path 11 podcast with your hosts, Mike and April. Today, we are interviewing Jim Hislop, and usually we do our best to have the best audio quality that we can do most of our interviews through Skype, but unfortunately, Jim was only able to call in through a landline, so you may notice a difference in the audio quality, but the content of this interview is outstanding, and we think you're really going to like it. So let me let you know a little bit more about James Hislop. He graduated from Colgate University in 1973 with a bachelor's in fine arts and later went on to get his master's of social work from SUNY School of Social Work in 1977. He has a family therapy certificate from Smith College, five hypnotherapy certifications from 2002 to 2014, and has worked in various public agencies since 1977. Jim has been in private practice since 1987 and currently has his private practice in Albany, New York. He uses standard counseling and hypnotherapy techniques to fill in emotional developmental deficits, correct childhood misinformation, and neutralize traumatic events. For more information, you can visit his website at jameshislop.com. Yeah, I'm really excited to actually talk about this topic of hypnotherapy, Um, basically because it uses a lot of a person's imagination to kind of create stories and go to places to heal themselves. So I am sure most listeners have heard of hypnotherapy before, and I would guarantee that a majority of them probably picture the stage hypnotherapy of, you know, people going up on stage and clucking like chickens and it becomes a form of entertainment. But um, Uh I know that you use it in a clinical setting because you're also a social worker by trade. So maybe you can describe a little bit of, I'm not saying that stage hypnotherapy isn't a serious form of hypnotherapy, you know, it's a matter of suggestion, but maybe you can just give a brief overview for our listeners of what exactly hypnotherapy is, what it's uh, what it does, what it's used for. All right. Well, the technical definition of hypnosis is the bypass of the critical factor and the acceptance of a worthy suggestion. And so bypass the critical factor means that our tendency to reject new information compared to old, uh, we bypass that so that a person might call it or we might call it the willing suspension of disbelief. So when you ask someone to imagine something, it's not that it has to be true in reality. It's that it would be something imagined that has a life of its own, a purpose of its own, a reality of its own. And it doesn't have to be proven true or not true. It's simply uh, bypassing our, our, our willingness or bypassing our tendency to reject things that are different or uh, seem to not fit. The acceptance of a worthy suggestion is that uh, if we're going to suspend our disbelief, then what is it that you want me to think about or what is it that you want me to entertain? And it's uh, it's a different belief um, so that uh, we would accept someone else's suggestion to consider something or to experience something. So uh, to conclude all that, if we suspend our disbelief and would entertain the possibility of something else, then you can uh, get a a smoker 
to entertain the possibility of being a non-smoker. Or you can get uh, someone who would want to lose weight to entertain the possibility of being at a weight where they feel comfortable and uh, healthy. Or uh, somebody with a hot temper to entertain the possibility of finding a different way of expressing anger than the usual way, which tends to cause trouble. So there's all kinds of, of purposes to hypnosis. It's an influence technology. And one, like I say, it, it bypasses people, uh, people's tendency to reject something new and gets them to consider and actually enact or imagine uh, some different possibility, some different, some alternative reality. That makes sense? Absolutely. Now, would yeah. you say that hypnotherapy is really, can we call it an altered state of consciousness? Uh, uh, some people would. I think a lot of people would. But I think that we're in and out of trance all the time. In fact, uh, we're, we're in one trance or another all the time. So what hypnotists do uh, is simply um, move one trance uh, into place rather than having another trance there, or we trade one trance for another. So again, if you're a smoker and you're in this trance that you believe you need to have a cigarette, the hypnotist would change that trance to a different one uh, where you're now in a trance where you're a non-smoker or if you're in a trance where you believe you have to be uh, discouraged all the time, uh, you would uh, swap that for a trance where uh, you believe that there are possibilities and there's evidence for hope. So we really swap one trance for another. We're rarely not in a trance of some kind. Now, there's a, a book written by a Stephen Walensky called Trances People Live, where he states exactly that case, that uh, we live our trances and we can change those trances if we choose to, if we would like to. So that's that. Yeah, and I, I would agree. I would say I've heard some people say that even when we drive sometimes and you, you don't even remember getting from point A to point B, that something kind of can mm -hmm. happen in like a trance-like state when you're, just when you're driving. Um, would you okay. consider that to kind of be, it's not really a form of hypnosis, but when you say that we are kind of in trance all day uh -huh. throughout the day, you know, and that something happens when you're driving, how, how do you explain mm -hmm. that? Yeah, well, they call that highway hypnosis, where your mind is somewhere else. Uh, you're kind of on automatic pilot driving up the road, and as long as uh, nothing unusual happens to return your attention to your driving, uh, then your mind is thinking of something and processing something where you're basically watching the road and what we might say on automatic pilot. Um, often, though, when you ask people what were you thinking or where was your mind, they won't be able to tell you that they don't recall what they were thinking. But they were certainly somewhere else mentally and uh, certainly not paying close attention to the road. Now, if a, a ball were to roll into the road or uh, some other driver swerves into your lane, again, that would attract your attention to return your full attention to the driving. Whatever you were thinking about goes way to the back. 
but if nothing uh, difficult happens, then we tend to process some kind of emotional or thought process, uh, but we're rarely, rarely aware, aware of it. That's called highway hypnosis. What brought you to uh, hypnotherapy? What brought me? Um, I, I had a general social work practice of uh, working with a lot of anxiety and depression and relationship conflicts and whatever else, uh, what a typical therapist would do, and I became really bored with that. Uh, there must be a method, there must be an approach that uh, is more effective and more experiential than the cognitive behavioral format that I was trained on. And so uh, I got curious and I came across a book on past lives by a writer named Roger Wilger, and that was so fascinating, uh, not, not really because uh, of the existence of past lives or not, I'm still not really sure what that's about, but the way he handled trauma and the way he handled emotion in very experiential and powerful ways uh, was so fascinating that I had to learn all about it. And um, he would often insist this is not hypnosis, this is imagination. Uh, what he didn't realize is that hypnosis is imagination. Uh, so after I completed training with him, or during, during the middle of the training, I went and studied with the hypnotists, the people who do stage shows and carnival shows and, and cruise ships, and uh, as well as the, the same people who do uh, quit smoking and lose weight kinds of sessions, to find that um, it is the same thing. You're still dealing with emotion and imagination. And it was the most fascinating thing. So it totally changed the way I look at my work, even though I might do the same things and even say the same things. It's totally changed the way I um, tend to people and the changes that they want to make. So that's what got me into hypnosis. I haven't been the same ever since. <laughs> okay. Now, um, with the, the past lives, we're... It, you, you you say it, you don't you're not sure um, that it's yeah. an actual past life, but it's more imagination, or it is imagination. Yeah. But, um, and I know our, our audience listening to this is um, probably listening to this because they they think we're going to talk about a lot about past lives, but I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering, do you where does this imagination come from? From this, if it's like a life that's not this current life, but they're perceiving it as a past life. How do, do you have any insights as to why this might not be a past life? Or Well, uh, yeah, I came across writing by a, a scientist, actually, and he's deceased a long time now, Carl Sagan. Oh, yes. Uh, he, yes. Did, um, yeah, he did a lot of uh, wonderful work and died very young. Uh, and he, um, he wrote, uh, 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 well, one of his books, I can't remember which one now, um, but one of his books, he, he basically said just because it's an intense emotion and powerfully felt, it doesn't mean that it's true. It's valid for that person. But if you, if you have a, an intense 
uh, imagery of being eaten by a lion in the Colosseum in uh, you know the, the days of Emperor Nero in the Roman Empire, and you're sure that you were eaten alive, and you feel that you recall it, and you feel it. Uh, it certainly it certainly has its own reality, but it doesn't mean that you actually had a previous life. You, you, you can't really prove it. So as a scientist, he died uh, on his deathbed. Um, he basically said, I wish it were true, but I can't prove that it's true. And uh, But that quote was very influential. So I, when I do work with past lives, I don't, really put much time into worrying whether, concern whether someone's experience actually happened. Uh, it's more that it's valid right now. It's, it's real emotionally. And that was Roger Wolger's gift uh, as a practitioner and as a writer and as a, his PhD was in um, religious studies, but he was trained as a Jungian analyst as well. And so his gift was in uh, not worrying what's really true uh, historically, but this emotion here and now is true. And he was brilliant at uh, evoking the story of what happens and then guiding a person through that emotional experience to create an amazing resolution and lesson and experience out of that emotional process. He was just brilliant with it. And so people would experience his attention. I mean, he would guide people through these experiences of a previous life and then the death in that life. And then in the afterlife, uh, after, later after that death, uh, a conscious reevaluation and uh, assessment and emotional experience that made sense of it. So people in this life felt uh, validated and empowered and uh, kind of reoriented. They could identify where a lot of their troubles in this life came from uh, and, and actually associated with a past life, whether it was true or not. And that was his gift. So um, in studying with him, I decided it really didn't matter to prove or disprove the actual uh, event. It's the emotional event. It's the emotional process. That uh, that would that would be valid. That would make that would have value in this in this life. Now I remember Jim when Mike and I came to film you because a side project that we're working on uh, once we have our third film out is going to be a bit of a web series and um, uh -huh. we came out to film you and you told a pretty amazing story in your training about was it um, it was a woman right. And the uh -huh. dog, was it the woman and the dog, or it was yeah, about yeah. her back? And, and uh -huh. you know, the fact that I, I would really like you to tell that story because I find that to be pretty fascinating and amazing. And it yes. kind of proves true to what you're talking about now about how it doesn't really matter if it was a past life or this life, but that the healing of the emotion in the present moment is what's most mm, important. Yeah. So can, can you share that story and experience? Sure, and that uh, was one of the most convincing experiences uh, for me about the work that he did. And uh, again, I can't say that uh, spirit or entity possession is real. Uh, I think it explains a lot, uh, but you can't prove it, just like anything else that we accept on faith. And so it was an exercise where 
uh, we had a partner and we would um, explore past life experiences by looking at pictures. And those pictures would, uh, we select a picture out of 200 that were strewn around a table or in a room. And we picked one that seemed especially interesting and then basically make up a story about it, uh, but then uh, add intensity to the story to make it even more real and then associate that to a, a past experience or a past life that had strong emotional content and its own reality. So my partner um, picked a picture and uh, but was very uncooperative, uh, and I was simply doing what I was instructed to do, which is to uh, get her mind to associate to the picture and make a story about it, but she was very uncooperative. And one of uh, Dr. Wolger's assistants came over to help me and uh, found the same thing, or wasn't able to get my partner to associate uh, to the picture very well. There was just a lot of sort of stonewalling and uh, distraction and really a lot of resistance on her part. So she summoned Dr. Wilger over and uh, after talking to her for a few minutes, um, she said that there was this discomfort in her back and uh, that it felt like a certain kind of pain or stiffness or or some, something that really was about her that didn't fully belong to her. And uh, somehow he started a dialogue with her back as though the back could answer, her back could answer. And, um, uh, and I wish I could recall it verbatim, but he, he, he found that her back was re-experiencing an event in her life where she was abused and uh, and then uh, somehow um, her self-defensive aura or armor or whatever it is as a youngster was compromised so that some other energy was able to attach itself to her. And uh, it attached itself around sensations in her back. And so in further talking to her back, uh, Dr. Wilger was now talking to uh, some kind of uh, entity that was associated with her, attached to her, and the actual, uh, I recall her voice changing to more of a male voice and a deeper voice and uh, even sort of a different accent, a different presence. So he was asking that energy that attached to her you know, why are you with her? What, what are you doing? And the voice or the, the, the energy or whatever you want to call it said that uh, it was a solitary life. It was a man's life. Uh, he lived alone. He died alone. Um, he died young. Uh, was sort of uh, an unwanted person in a, in a previous time, a long time ago. And... Um, uh, he died rather suddenly somehow, and he didn't know he was dead. He didn't know his body died. All he knew is that his loneliness drew her to the loneliness felt by my partner at the time that she was abused, which was very young. So he attached to her. Now, this is all coming out of her mouth in a different voice in a dialogue with Dr. Wolger. 
so then he started um, becoming more assertive with this entity, saying that uh, you had a body, your body died, uh, you don't belong here, uh, you can't help this woman, you can't help uh, the little girl who she used to be, and you need to leave, and you need to go to the light where all spirits go, where they belong, and uh, your being attached to her is basically a misunderstanding, uh, and um, you're not helping her, in fact, you're harming her, and that uh, you need to get on with whatever you need to do as a spirit and stop trying to pretend that you have a body. And that, that conversation went on for a couple of minutes. There was actually a lot of resistance. That, that male energy did not want to leave her. Uh, she was soft. She was warm. She was uh, responsive to the, the, their, their energies between them. And uh, um, uh, it, it took a couple of minutes until finally he said, you know, you must leave. And uh, when you leave now, you're going to look up and find a certain kind of light and uh, persuaded this energy to do that and, and saw some kind of light and still didn't want to leave uh, and, and would say, well, you know, no one in the life that he had when he had a body really loved him. But uh, Dr. Wilger found that the man had had a dog and the dog died just before he did. Uh, it was part of, part of his heartbreak and why he wasn't really willing to hang on to life much longer. And uh, so he had him summon the dog from the light, the dog's spirit from the light, to uh, come forward to guide him, to, to actually uh, be there so that when he leaves this woman's body, he has a place to go, to attach to, uh, he has some kind of entity to follow, so he won't be so alone and so frightened. And uh, I, I think other spirit guides emerged from the light to accompany the dog who was coming for him. It was a very dramatic scene. He had this, this man's energy reach up and uh, move towards the light, and the dog came towards him. Uh, everybody was sobbing. It was a very intense, emotional kind of drama where uh, finally um, the, the, the man left the woman's body and went to the light. And he asked, he asked my partner, uh, he said, well, you know, tell me when he's gone. And after a few moments, her normal voice returned and said, he's gone. And uh, then he said some wonderful things to her about filling that space where he'd been in her back with a certain metaphors of light and healing and uh, energy that had previously been occupied by his energy. And uh, then at some point her eyes opened and everybody went to lunch, um, but uh, I, was, I was so affected by that uh, that I just kind of sat there for a couple of minutes. I, I really wasn't hungry. Uh, I'd never seen anything like that in my life. So, um, if I needed something to convince me of the power of this man's work and the value of this man's work, uh, that was certainly more than enough. Uh, I'm still not sure how real it was. or I, I don't think that she made it up uh, in, in the sense that we would make up a story or make up a lie. Uh, I, I think it was really real to her and it emerged from her imagination. Uh, but again, we can't 
prove it. But uh, the the change in her uh, from having done that work with him was immeasurable. She became really a very different, uh, a very different attitude, a very different presence. Uh, it was like she certainly left behind a huge burden, and uh, was was in much better spirits. Uh, you know, whenever I saw her again, and we did a couple of workshops after that. So that's that's the story. I mean, I, I, you know, you, you could call it an exorcism, where um, uh, a human spirit was released from another human being. Uh, he also had ways of releasing dark spirits that never had a life, never had a body, that are you know exists in in, in places we can't perceive them but influence us. Um, there was a concept of walk-ins where a spirit or an energy will walk into someone's body and uh, influence their mind. And I think there are people who are really vulnerable to that, people who are mentally ill or um, drug intoxicated or in anesthesia or uh, extreme emotional states uh, where that walk-ins energy which is not theirs, but it walks into their being, uh, will influence them to do and say things that they would never do normally uh, in this life. I, I think there's a lot of crimes of passion committed and uh, you know, certainly this recent rash of shootings and God knows what else, which is certainly not new in history. Um, but I, I do believe that human beings are very susceptible to spirits who walk in and actually take control of behavior. There's a uh, psychic, um, gosh, what is her name? Uh, um, let's see, what's her name? Dion Fortune. She was a, a psychic. Um, she died just after World War II, or during World War II, at the age of 44, I believe. And um, she wrote a book called Psychic Self-Defense, uh, which I'd read. And uh, I think there's a lot of validity to that, too. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But I think that there are mental and emotional states that you can cultivate and practice that um, give you at least uh, an advantage over a lot of the influences that, that sort of float around. And I could go on and on. So well, I'd um, love for you to go on and on. <laughs> OK. <laughs> but, that, but that was that experience with Roger that uh, I would say it's probably the most unforgettable one. I, I always wondered what happened to my partner, how she progressed on in life. My God, that was uh, so many years ago. That must have been 2000, 2001, maybe, a couple years ago already. Uh, I wonder how she's doing and wish her well. Um, yeah, and I, have you had um, any experiences just in the years that you have been doing hypnotherapy where any you feel any of your clients maybe had a spirit walk in and you saw something pretty dramatic change similar to what you saw in your training? Yeah, I've, I've done a couple, um, but in, in the practice I'm in, which is dominated by insurance companies and uh, the, the medical kind of, uh, the medical field, uh, there's not a great call for it and there's not a lot of receptivity to it, so I don't I don't um, talk about it a lot, uh, but I do believe that there, uh, I, you know, these these energies exist, and I do believe. Uh, anyway, so there have been a couple of people who uh, who were willing to consider such a, a possibility, 
And uh, I find that mostly with addicts whose mental states have been altered by their drug habit, especially over a long period of time. And uh, you know, what Dr. Ruger would say is that they're vulnerable to this kind of energy because their self-defensive aura has been compromised. And um, I've actually had uh, some pretty amazing sessions with people when they've done that. And I've had another one or two come to me um, hearing of that from somewhere, maybe from an ex-client, who uh, actually requested. But it's, it's actually very rare. It's, it's probably one or two or three people a year actually want that kind of service. Most people just want to, to focus on this life. So it happens occasionally. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you about, you know, um, how often do you encounter that? But um, do you get also get, um, I know we're talking about walk-ins and, and other entity interference. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but uh, uh-huh. do you see more in past lives and dealing with that? Or is it is it just more like dealing with addictions and weight loss and uh, other physical ailments type, uh, what do you see most of? Well, I certainly see people wanting to, um, I mean, they're curious about hypnosis and they want to know what the experience is and they, they have a lot of um, Hollywood-type ideas about it. Uh, but um, uh, I, I think that when you uh, get someone's permission to activate their imagination and imagine something, then you've moved out of uh, the cognitive behavioral typical talk therapy model into an experiential model. And uh, is that what your question was? Uh, Not really, but you can keep going. (laughs) It's pretty interesting. Oh. (laughs) All right. Uh, so often with, with uh, um, so, and I'm much more inclined, although it's a lot more work, to use an experiential model where I would ask somebody to, um, well, here's, here's something I do a lot, uh, that if someone has a troublesome feeling of anxiety or depression or rage or whatever it may be, um, that bothers them in the present, uh, you get a history of that feeling and have that person remember backwards to um, one of the earliest and most intense experiences of that feeling that they can remember. And let's say it's uh, usually before the age of reason, before um, that they can really reject uh, other people's opinions, um, but instead take things very literally and take things very personally um, usually parental mistakes that parents make. Uh, and you select a scene in which that person, uh, as a youngster, was experiencing something intolerable. And that emotion was imprinted or anchored uh, to, to some experience in that scene, and uh, then later in life gets replayed in relationships or uh, um, life uh, struggles, uh, challenges in life, and is actually quite an impairment. So when you have that earlier scene uh, where the, the youngster who this person used to be is experiencing this intolerable emotion, uh, you have the 
adult who is here and now in the office, imagine going back in time to be in that scene with the youngster. And uh, it's like oneself, one part of oneself uh, advising the other part of oneself on what this is all about and giving that information um, such that, you know, if I'd only known then what I know now, uh, you actually make that happen uh, where the adult now goes back and tells the younger self then what the real truth is. Does that make sense so far? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And there's actually a script for it. There's a whole bunch of hypnotists who use this technique. Um, certainly not limited to hypnotists. Um, there's a number of hypnotists who have actually written about it um, and published it in books and scripts and uh, articles. Uh, so it's uh, easy to get a hold of it. It's called the informed child technique where um, the adult part now, uh, you, you establish, first of all, you establish a sense of trust and connection and caring between the adult self and the child self. So it's as though almost to the child self, this angel appeared or this, this fairy godmother or something in the form of the much older self. And so uh, once that's established, a sense of connection, a sense of trust, and it tends to get pretty emotional for a lot of people, so you know you've you know, hit the right kind of uh, experience, uh, then uh, what I would do is feed the script to the adult self to say to the child self in the imagination or the memory, um, these now corrective, uh, corrective things to say. And it's actually a script which starts with, I love you, and we're having the adult self love the child self. And again, if there's enough emotion there, if there's enough hypnosis there, if that critical factor has been bypassed and this person is accepting my suggestions literally, then the experience becomes real, even though this never, ever happened before. Uh, but the experience becomes real that the child is now being informed as though there were no time, as though it, it actually, what happened then feels like it's happening now, what's happening now feels like it happened then. So once we have that correct amount or the necessary amount of hypnosis, you know, so the person says, well, I love you to the child self, and then says, uh, in, in my in words that I've altered a little bit, but now that I've found you, I will never leave you. And you keep checking that the child self understands and believes the adult self, and if so, great, you move on, and if not, then you have the adult self say more words, you know, say, say more, be more convincing to this child self until you're successful with that. And so it's, I love you, uh, I'll never, now that I've found you, I'll never leave you. The next one is, I'll never lie to you. Now, a lot of children don't quite understand that, so the adult has to uh, clarify that, that, what a lie is, and, and I'll, never, I'll never not tell you the truth. Uh, so I love you, I'll never, now that I've found you, I'll never leave you, I'll never lie to you. Uh, then you get into, none of this is your fault. And usually people, if they aren't in tears already, they dissolve into tears because they hadn't 
realized how much they blamed themselves for whatever caused that feeling. Uh, and then um, uh, the next statement is, you never deserved this. And uh, again, the same kind of response is that, oh my god, I didn't deserve it. And they knew they didn't deserve it, the adult part does, but the child self never knew that until this moment. And then uh, the, the next one you say is, I know you get to grow up, you don't die. And the proof of that is living right in the chair. So that's pretty undeniable. But a lot of children, when they're going through horrendous emotional situations, they don't know if they're going to make it. They, they really don't know. They might die from it. And they have no one there to tell them that they won't. So the adult corrects that distortion. And then I've added, uh, when I think of uh, all that you've been through, I'm really proud of you. And the child part would accept that. And so now that goes after the self-esteem kinds of problems where um, people feel ashamed of that whole experience. But now we've changed it to, I'm actually very proud of you, considering all that you've survived. And you can embellish it and add to it and take it different places. And you kind of like riding a bicycle. You get so familiar with it, it becomes automatic. But that experience really deals with the fear. And once the fear has been identified and kind of neutralized, then you move on to anger, and then you move on to shame and guilt. And by that point, the process is pretty much done. Most people, um, I would say most people, move on after the, the uh, informed child experience that deals with fear. And the rest, they can probably handle themselves. Anyway, that's probably one of the backbones of any hypnotic uh, practice or hypnosis practice, I think. If you're going to help people deal with anxiety and depression, uh, that's pretty much where you need to go and where you need to, where you need to um, make the biggest changes. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said earlier, when you were talking about the trance state, that type of session almost sounds as if, they're kind of going into trance in the past and bringing it back to the present and going back to the past and back to the present. And I think it's just pretty amazing how a technique and using, I mean, you are using imagination there and having them to, you know, repicture a lot of things, how much healing that can bring a person. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, because they get to experience the fear that they've been running from or whatever emotion that they've been running from. And now they don't have to run anymore. It's like yeah, a bully. It kind of reminds me, too, um, of some of the concepts of soul fragments. I've, I've heard of people kind of describe that when people yeah. go through certain events in their life or maybe a traumatic event that maybe a part of their energy or a part of their soul will kind of be detached a little bit from their energy field and how you can use the hypnotherapy technique to kind of do a soul rescue or bring that part of the person back in by using some of these trance states and imagination and kind of guided techniques to help the person to do that. Yeah, absolutely. That's really what it is. There's uh, another thing called parts therapy, which is sort of written up by a particular, uh, Roy Hunter was his name, he wrote the book on parts therapy, but you know, these ideas have been around for a long time of using parts of oneself to renegotiate a new way of being or um, reclaiming lost parts or correcting 
uh, distortions uh, that parts of us might believe, uh, even though the adult part knows what reality is. So there's so many different ways of, of so many different formulas of basically addressing the same process and the same goal, which is to, to cultivate a sense of wholeness, a sense of completeness in a person, uh, to, um, to somehow remedy that dissociated, fragmented feeling that kind of haunts people. Uh, now they would feel whole and complete and uh, worthy and uh, uh, deserving, like the, deserving like they deserve to be here. So, yes, indeed, very different ways to the top of the mountain. Yeah, it makes me, just when you were kind of talking about that story, it reminds me of the Albert Einstein quote about uh, logic will get you from A to B, but imagine, imagination can take you anywhere, you know, in every yeah. place, So, Yes. And that and really, to me, kind of sums up hypnotherapy a little bit. That it does. Roger Wilker would be jumping up and down in his grave now saying, yes, yes, that's true. That's the way it is. And imagination trumps uh, logic every time. And there's a certain logic to imagination anyway, and I think that most great inventions start in the imagination, and then the, the logic people actually put it into formulas and, and take it to the laboratory, but it's the imagination that uh, first initiates any of these things. So yes, indeed, totally agree. Have you ever encountered anybody that couldn't be uh, hypnotized or, you know, put into trance at all? Because um, I know... Yes. Uh, okay, you have. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so with any... Uh, I believe with any hypnosis student, um, whether they're a clinician or not, so there are a lot of hypnosis students who are not therapists, but uh, I would advocate for a basic... Uh, kind of assessment skill, uh, and I've learned this the hard way, uh, to assess people whether they're able to tolerate uh, that uh, the, the emotional ride uh, that hypnosis often requires. Uh, I, I think a lot of people have been traumatized or um, you know, have, I wouldn't call it a weakness, but I would call it a liability where when strong emotion is mobilized, they get uh, rapidly and deeply overwhelmed so that um, you have to stop the hypnosis and bring them back to reality, that kind of thing. But I think that is better avoided uh, than having to handle it. Um, now, there's a there's a, there's a whole lot of people who deal with trauma uh, and use hypnosis for trauma. Uh, but there's a particular writer named Peter Levine who wrote a book called Waking the Tiger. Uh, and um, uh, it's Waking the Tiger, Healing Trauma. And his book also used imagination, but it, it, didn't, uh, it didn't put people into a a formal sense of hypnosis, but rather was a, more about physical exercises uh, of, of feeling your spine and a lot of centering and grounding kinds of exercises that, that got a person to have enough faith in themselves 
and uh, the, the idea of a safe place to go to emotionally uh, and uh, imaginatively uh, if the emotion got overwhelming. So it's kind of a preemptive, uh, uh, kind of a precaution uh, place to start, which is to assess someone's ability to handle emotion or handle silence, handle empty space. And uh, if, if they seem unsteady or, or shaky, to build in centering and grounding and breathing exercises as an additional resource. And then they might be ready for the ride of all these sort of uh, cathartic or abreactive kinds of things. Also, uh, people who lack imagination. So I, I think a lot of individuals who are intellectually disabled, um, um, just not able to, to uh, I mean, they're developmentally disabled maybe, uh, where they're, they're not able to use their imagination they would, I think, respond much better to behavioral techniques. You know, do this, don't do that. And a lot of drills and rehearsals and uh, kinds of those things. So uh, generally speaking, the more intelligent somebody is, the more uh, imaginative they will be. And the more imaginative they will be, then the more hypnosis is really uh, the better tool and the better technique. Um, and, and the Again, if somebody's traumatized, you have to build in the resources first. Okay. Now, yeah. kind of bringing it kind of back to past lives a little bit, but not really. Um, uh -huh. I, I've read a lot of uh, Brian Weiss, Dr. Brian Weiss, and uh, Dr. Michael Newton, uh, some of their okay. their cases, and they deal yep. um, a lot with the past lives and life between lives. And there's a couple cases where they actually went to future lives. I know it's. Yeah probably in the same realm where you know you can't really prove it but mm -hmm. have you ever dealt with uh, like a future life kind of uh, a thing I've seen it done uh, but I haven't done it myself okay that's just one thing I haven't gotten around to trying yet this uh, but it, it is a, a well-spoken of technique at the hypnosis convention where uh, in fact in order to uh, consolidate games made in a session where, uh, you know, if you have time, a session where you heal the past, then you have people imagine into the future uh, how they will feel and how they will behave uh, with these changes already in place. And uh, then they create a whole other scenario for themselves. Um, with uh, uh, the, the new behaviors in place and imagining that in a much more experiential, kind of alive kind of way. Uh, so that's the rationale behind it. Uh, I rarely have time to do all that, though. Uh, usually I just deal with the past, yeah. But I mean, that, that's a pretty well accepted. In fact, some people even say it's absolutely essential. And so... A real quick question. Uh, I, bringing up Brian Weiss, reading his first book, um, he, he was dealing with one patient where, the, you know, rapid, not rapid, but quite a few past lives over and over again. And finally, at some point, the person's, whether you call them guides, guardian angels, or guardians, uh, you know, helpers, um, uh -huh. they stepped in at some point. Have you ever had that where another uh Entity had stepped in and kind of spoke for the person under trance? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, Roger Wilger did that all the time. Okay. Um, yeah, I, you can have people uh, invite um, uh, entities or deceased relatives or the spirits of living relatives into uh, sort of a chorus or as consultants to this person uh, on whatever matter it is. Uh, and so, gosh, the, the great hypnotists really did that all the time. They would, you know, once they completed a certain kind of work, uh, they would say, well, now imagine everybody is out in front of you and, uh, you know, tell all of them <clears throat> what this is like or what you've accomplished. And then uh, solicit from them their support or their acknowledgement or their response to these changes that you've made. I mean, you can cement it in in a number of ways. Is that what your question was? Yeah, that you, you kind of hit on it there. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. that, that, yeah, you, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. That's one of those things if you have time. Yeah, well, thank you, Jim. It's amazing to think that in an hour we've talked about half-lives, some exorcisms, <laughs> <a> spirit walking. <laughs> um, yeah, and all yeah. of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so if people are in the Albany, New York area, would you like to let them know how they could get a hold of you or maybe come in for a session if they'd like to try this? Sure. Uh, they're going to meet, though, a, a pretty conservative, uh, medically-based practice, and they're going to have to mention it if they want something that's a little off the beaten path. But, um, you, you know, our, our office suite is at 6 Executive Park Drive in Albany. And, uh, I mean, should I say, like, my phone number and that sort of thing? Sure. That'd be great. Yeah. Okay. It's 518-482-6160. And people can um, give a description or, or uh, request a call back uh, and, uh, or ask me to email them, uh, leave an email address, and uh, we can start a conversation about it. Uh, they can set up an appointment, and uh, we'll see where we go from there. It was a lot of fun having you on, Jim. Always great to well, talk to you. That was a lot of fun. Well, and I thank you for the opportunity to do this with you, though, and certainly anything more I can do in the future, let me know. If you'd like more information about our films or to purchase our DVDs, you can head on over to our website at thepastseries.com. They're also available to purchase on amazon.com. Our films are also streaming online at vimeo.com, guyamtv.com, and iTunes. If you have a show suggestion or would like us to interview someone specifically, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at com or send us a tweet at the past series. Please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the show.